0: I'm Al Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not-too-close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities and, we hope, gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive writing Dot upenn, U-P-E-N-N dot E-D-U slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here delightedly in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Diane Rothenberg, anthropologist, editor, collaborator, who's been an active participant in the long ongoing conversation about ethnopoetics, who is co-editor of Symposium of the Whole. A Range of Discourse Toward in Ethnopoetics, California Press, 1983, and author of Friends Like These, an Ethnohistorical Analysis, 1976, author of Mothers of the Nation, whose many essays include Corn Soup and Fry Bread, The Economic Memories of Harry Watt, and On the Insanity of Corn Planter, a historical account that touches also on the poetics and problematics of vision in traditional Indian cultures. And by Ariel Resnikoff, poet, teacher, talented poetry community collaborator, whose most recent works include a pamphlet, 10-4, Poems, Translations, Variations, written with Jerome Rothenberg, and a chapbook called Between Shades, who curates a reading series here at the Writer's House called Multilingual Poetics, a series hosting Jerry and Diane Rothenberg's visit on this very day, and whose new poems and translations can be found in Jacket 2, White Wall Review, Mantis, and elsewhere, and who is working on the poetry of the Yiddish modernist Mikhail Licht. How did I do pronouncing that? I'm getting better at it. Very Wonderful. (laughs) And by the aforementioned Jerome Rothenberg, internationally celebrated poet, translator, anthologist, essayist, performer, with over 90 books of poetry and at least 12 assemblages of traditional and avant-garde works, such as Technicians of the Sacred, Shaking the Pumpkin, and with Pierre Joris and Jeffrey Robinson, the three-volume Poems for the Millennium, who was a Kelly Writer's House fellow here in 2008— who's Technicians of the Sacred, the 50th anniversary of which we are celebrating at the Writer's House on the day of this recording, has guided and taught several generations of poets, artists, scholars, and readers. Jerry and Diane, it is such a delight to have you back at the Writer's House. Thanks for coming.
1: And such a pleasure to be here again.
0: Diane, it's great it to see like you. It feels like coming home. Yeah, it's been... <laughs> I mean, these visits are, are always wonderful. And Ariel Reznikoff... You're a regular. Still a pleasure. It's, it's great to see you every time you cross the threshold. Well, the four of us are here today to talk about the late and much-missed David Anton. specifically a talk poem he performed at Buffalo in 2003 called War. It was presented on March 26, 2003, to be precise, six days after the United States invasion of Iraq had begun, the second invasion. So far as we know, the piece has never been transcribed. The audio recording done as usual on Anton's own recorder is available at David Anton's extensive pen sound page. Of course, we recommend that Poem Talk listeners hear the entire mesmerizing 50-minute and 35-second recording. But we now will hear and will focus our discussion, at least to start, on two excerpts. The first, which we could call the Archimedes section, runs from 4 minutes and 55 seconds into the whole recording up to 10 minutes and 30 seconds. The second clip, which we could call the metonymy section, runs from 1737 to 2205. So here now are excerpts from David Anton's performance of war.
2: So it was, it was a nice idea and I thought it was terrific and I knew that war was hanging over our heads like a Tamaklian sword, but I didn't expect for the war to open up just at the moment I was going up to do a talk in Los Angeles. And on the way up to talk at Los, in Los Angeles, I had the feeling that everybody would be there. It was the day the war opened, and it was in the evening at 7.30, and I'm driving up 130 miles to Los Angeles, wondering what in the world am I going to do? I mean, if I don't pay any attention to the war, they're be, their minds will be on it at every point. And what, and, but on the other hand, we've heard so much about it. I mean, we heard this war over and over again. Every, every argument for the war and against the war has been presented over and over again. And the rhetoric is tiresome, ultimately. The point is, most of us who are sane feel we've been hijacked by a mad president uh, who doesn't know what he's doing, and a group of uh, peculiarly weird opportunists who, in fact, have been feeding him this information that he's going to reconstruct the entire world of the Middle East, and probably after that, everything else. And since he was a man who probably couldn't find Norway on a map of Europe, uh, (laughs) it it seemed unlikely that this was an idea of his. (laughs) And the idea had, you know, so it it led me to think maybe I should talk about the question of motivation. But then I basically couldn't even have the heart for it. I went up there and did a talk about my experience as a child of war, uh, having wars having gone on all all the time that I remember, but. I don't want to rehearse these things, but what I feel is most offensive about the problem of the war is I feel that it's just, it's so profoundly irrelevant, however devastating and damaging it is, that I feel a little bit like Archimedes, who was you know in the middle of the siege of Syracuse during the Second Punic War, uh, in which Syracuse was caught in the middle between Rome and Carthage, and Archimedes, and you know, he was one of the great math- greatest mathematicians of the classical era, and he was interested in working out pi to the to the most infinite you know number of places pi is a number that basically is one of these transcendental numbers that's essentially constructed as a ratio and doesn't have a definitive a definitive quantitative number that you can give it has it approaches it a limit asymptotically but but it's not a as you know 3.1416 we all remember the relationship between the radius of a circle and the, cir- and the circle circumference so He was interested in this even though he had designed the weapons of war and hooks of various kinds grappling hooks for overturning ships and doing all this but he really wanted to work on mathematics and i'm beginning to feel a great deal of identity with him as he was sitting there in the sand you know working on the relationship to the circle and he had drawn this carefully designed circle and presumably i I would guess one of the ways of dealing with pi is to inscribe a polygon around it, and then take the same polygon and inscribe, it, inscribe a smaller version inside of it. And between f- computing, as it were, the ratio uh, of, the, of the sides of the polygon to the, the circumference of the polygons, these two polygons it would stand in a similar relationship to the ratio that he would locate it between two polygons that would get larger and larger and have more and more sides. First he would put in a hexagon inside of the, and then a hexagon outside, and then it would be a much larger polygon of 12 sides, of 30 sides, till finally he was able to squeeze it between the, most, the narrowest possible of limits. At least that's the way I imagined he solved the problem because that's how I would have approached the problem if I you know, didn't have other methods for doing it that weren't available in those days. So I kept thinking, there he was on the the sand working with these multiple hexagons, multiple polygons, multiple sided polygons. They're all polygons of multiple-sided, working with polygons getting larger and larger and larger. In the meantime, the Roman invasion force was coming in. And at one point, the Roman soldier, a sword in hand, approached, and Archimedes thought had really gotten this thing down rather beautifully. But you had to look very carefully in the sand, because when you inscribe a, a very large polygon in the sand, the lines can't be completely straight. Uh, and the slightest disturbance of the sand will obscure the polygons. And he might forget what exactly what he was doing. And this Roman soldier blundered right into one of his circles, sword drawn, and he looked up and he said, "Stop bugging my circles!" And they killed him. Now, my guess is that that's the worst part of this war for us right now because we're not in—we're not up there in the war. You know, only adolescents are being killed in this war on the American side, and they're probably killing everybody on the other side to some degree as much as they can, while we receive glorified accounts, sort of sanitized accounts of the war uh, that come through the various media like Fox and CNN, uh, the great cheerleaders of the, this insanely stupid event, uh, which the stupidity of which seems to outweigh anything else. But in thinking about it, I got into the kind of idea that it would be interesting to me to discuss human motivation. Because you, you know, we always talk about presidents having ideas and desires, and they want to do something. But how do you decide somebody has been motivated to do something in a real sense? What does the motivation amount to? And I thought, well, just starting from the idea even of George Bush, you know, Freud asked, what the women want? My son said, what does George Bush want? So maybe the black box receives has separate channels for receiving economic information and military information. Maybe that's not the only thing. Of course, there was also the issue of terror, weapons, weapons of mass destruction that could fall into the hands of terrorists. Terrorists seem to be uh, identified primarily with the group of people who caused the, the profound destruction of the World Trade Center. The difficulty in connecting the two of them is rather is rather considerable because although George Bush and George W. and his advisors typically repeat in their sentences uh, terrorism 9-11 and Saddam Hussein, there seems to be no credible relationship between the two. So. We imagine that George Bush has somewhat of a poetical sensibility. And that what he does is he rela- they relate to each other by the celebrated principle of metonymy. Uh, they, the, 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 the two, the two, Saddam Hussein and 9-11 show up in proximity with each other. And if one uses the rather unfortunate essay of Jakobson dealing with two types of aphasia, uh, which produced, I think, an outrageously bad idea to begin with, Uh, However, once when, but we can't escape it because uh, American academics, who uh, both those who read French and those who read English versions of the French years later, seem to have found that all the French structuralists and then later the deconstructionists all took for granted the defective positioning of uh, uh, of the term metonymy and metaphor derived from the most casual usage by a great linguist, Roman Jakobson. essay is a disaster but it has been used regularly in the schools. I find that the schools teach it again and again and I try to stamp it out when I teach. I try to point out that that, that as an essay essay, it's idiotic. Uh, And I know it sounds terrible but I love Roman Jakobson, and I wish he had never written the essay because it's stupid. Um, (laughs) And it's stupid in a very demonstrable way. For example, Roman Jakobson pointed out that uh, metaphor and metonymy work differently. These are two antique rhetorical tropes, and he wished to give them a kind of linguistic characterization. So he decided to call metaphor, because some, some, some noun substitutes for some other noun in a primitive account of metaphor, uh, to call it, as it were, uh, as making, employing the notion of the substitution set, that is to say, a paradigm. Now, for those of you who've all studied Latin, you know that a paradigm, for example, are the cases of the Latin noun. Uh, what is it? Five or six? If you include the vocative, I guess there are six cases of the Latin noun in the singular and in the plural. Now, according to a theory, the paradigmatic theory is, as offered by uh, by Saussure, that is to say, for phonology, phonemes derive largely from their con- derive their meaning from their contrast with the other possible occupa- occupants of the same phonological position. In other words, like pun, but, uh, represent two distinctive uh, distinctive phono- phonological entities, two phonemes, because they're distinctively different and could occupy the similar and env- similar environment. But the one problem with the whole theory that metaphor works this way, as for example, let us say, the seasons and, a, and the seasons and a nervous king, I have entered into the winter of my discontent. It doesn't work as if somehow or another, like you say, well, what could replace winter? What, you know, what is winter replacing? It kind of like he's reaching into a de- into a terrible period. There are in, there are nearly infinite number of possible substituents that could replace winter. I ventured into the I ventured into the into the seals and Roebuck of my discontent because it's chaotic, you know. Or well, maybe he couldn't have, but I could make him come. In, I could make him enter into anything. I you know, I could enter I could enter into the defective automobile of my discontent. They sold me a lemon. I have entered into the general motors of my discontent. I have entered into the end line of my discontent. You know, I mean we could do a lot with it, but the point is that there isn't a the finite substitution set for metaphor, and it doesn't work by substitution anyway. When a metaphor operates, it it operates like the production of an overlay. That is to say, one thing gets overlaid on something else, like a screen. And you print the two of the images, one on top of the other together. And whatever the consequences of that may be, that's what you're doing.
0: The second of those two passages, what I've called the metonymy section, um, of course it's about the false equation of Saddam and 9-11, but it's Anton in a way at his funniest. So maybe we should start with the comedy of it, uh, because obviously it's a deadly serious topic. But you know, Jerry, do you? This is typical Anton comedy. Can you give us some examples of it?
1: Well, I don't know if it's typical Anton comedy. <clears throat> it's, it's Anton turning his common comic sense toward the academic with which he's, you know, very much familiar. Uh, the rhetorical, historical with right. which he's very much familiar. Yeah. Uh, you know, and um, a lot of scorn goes into it also. Uh, but uh, but anyway, he's he's making the uh, his version of the metonymy metaphor uh, distinction, and uh, you know clearly you know metonymy in in the case of uh, uh, Saddam and uh, 9/11, yeah. you, you keep putting them together. And, log what's it and funny
0: uh, about it is the 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 high, the high low because he's got an audience of poets and academics at Buffalo, and they're all laughing at this the high low juxtaposition of. George W. Bush, who couldn't find Norway on a map, let alone the Middle East, and on the other hand, Saussure and Jakobsen and all this high-level phonology, the two together don't work, so it's funny. Yeah, but
1: what is missing in contrast, uh, you know, to other talk pieces of of David's uh, is um, the lowest level he can find is George Bush. You know, that's okay, Uh, you know. But the the other the ordinary, the, the, yeah. the world of ordinary things and ordinary people you know that populate uh, so much of uh, David's talk poetry right. uh, don't really come into this one with the possible exception later on of the dog the dog the dog Francesca of uh, Franny Franny, yeah, Franny. Of whom he mentions but that's that's just so in other in, words in, in, in passing he, he's, yeah. he's into something else yeah. here.
0: So it's six days, I believe six days after the war begins, and he's recollecting driving up from San Diego to L.A. to do a talk that he keeps referring to, but it wasn't this talk. That's before the war. This is six days after. So maybe, RL, the kind of answer to Jerry's concern about where's all the low stuff is that he was trying to be politically kind of serious. Maybe that's one of the flaws of this piece. I guess Diane, Diane wants to say you something you think he, he may have
1: left the uh, the ordinary stuff in Los Angeles. Uh.
0: He may have because now the war is on. And, of course, he's worried about what happens when you're talking about do- dogs. I almost said it the way he would say it, dogs. Um, you, you're talking about dogs and there's a war on, so you've got to be a little more highfalutin. What do you think about that?
3: Yeah, I do think that there's uh, this level of anxiety that you hear, uh, which is not typical. Usually he's he's quite comfortable in the way that he speaks. And I would recommend to anyone listening to go and just listen to some other talks in in, um, comparison. But in this particular case, he seems to be trying to figure out for himself uh, what it means to talk at a time when people are uh, fighting in in, in a war.
0: So let's get to Archimedes for a second. We can go back to the other stuff, to, to metonymy.
3: Yeah, I think that um, for any of the number of, say, quote, facts that David gets wrong in the piece in terms of, you know, we, we talked a little earlier before we started recording about this, about, you know, specific historical facts that he might have, uh, in a way, he's speaking in advance. Uh, and, and he's really speaking to a climate that we're facing right now in a really uh, intense way. And if you just took out, you know, some of the names and replaced other names, you could, you know, think about what he's talking about very much in, in direct relation to today. Box, the black box, The black box, exactly. And the ways in which performance becomes actually um, the, the central mode of how a government works. The, the, the
0: Trump administration is even more uh, more about this than... Can we say the, the of us more about the Archimedes connection? I mean, this is also unusual for Anton. He is making a very clear point. Archimedes is me, is the poets and the intellectuals. He says at the end of that passage, "That's the worst part of the war for us." Actually, for Archimedes in the story, it's pretty bad. He gets he gets killed by the Romans. Yeah, so the um, uh, the
1: comparison to Archimedes breaks down a little. Yeah, uh, you know, the worst part for us is. David is saying, and reiterates it at the end, the worst part is that we're distracted from doing what we really want to do, you know by this terrible You're you know bugging my circles, although it's right. happening somewhere else, yeah. uh, you know yeah. it, it keeps us from thinking
4: straight or getting our circles right. This mm. may be the flaw <laughs> right diane right and and this, uh, that and that's what I really don't like about this piece is that I think. You know, seriously, the war is more significant than simply being a distraction. Of the mathematician. Of the mathematician, of or, the the, mathematician the, of the or of the poet. I mean, mm-hmm. if that's all you can say about why, you know, this is so terrible. Uh, I And I don't like it because I don't think that David is usually so casual about life yeah, and it, it is also lives.
1: It is also a piece that he chose not to transcribe. You know, <clears throat> uh, if, if a piece had meant more to him, it would have been transcribed. Uh, you know, the lack of a transcription I- is something I find a little bothersome also. We're, we're just listening. Uh, we're not seeing David, so we're not We're not present for the live performance. You know, we're hearing a recording of the live performance. And we're not seeing the final version of it because the final version of a talk poem is not a, an oral experience, you know, but it's something on the page, you know, and a lot of care has gone into the putting it on, on okay, the page. Okay, so
0: this is the moment. We're going to go back to the issue, the big issue of our seeing this as an anomalous performance in Anton's career. I want to go back to that. But first, we need to stop and define for a lot of people listening to this podcast who don't know what a talk poem is, an Anton talk poem. First of all, and anybody, please pipe in. Here are a bunch of questions. One, did he invent this particular form? What does he do? I know he has strange lineation when he transcribes. How much change does he do? He has an obsession about recording himself. He always talks about it at the beginning. Um, How much is improvised? Uh, How much is planned in advance? How many of us have heard talk poems that include set pieces that he wanders into improvisationally? All those. What is a talk poem? Any of you? How do we start with this? Uh, Well, he invented the talk poem. Did the talk
1: poem exist before he invented it? That is to say, did it exist before he named it? Yes, it probably existed.
0: If anybody the, would know this, it would be
4: you, Jerry. Well, he, no, he, and, and, and David, David would, would recognize
0: anthology. that too. In,
1: yeah. in a, you know, famous David Anton quotation, uh, you know, not wanting to be a poet if Robert Lowell is a poet, not wanting to be a poet if Robert Frost is a poet, but if you tell me that Socrates is a poet, I'll consider it. You know, and Socrates did not write his poems down, you know, and he did not versify them. He talked what what Socrates talked, David Anton says, was his poetry. Uh, so, you know, so he at least would you know put one of his ancestors you know back at the time of Socrates, and in fact Socrates himself you know as a, as a talk poet, following the you know the, the the path of the philosophers from Socrates. You know, we can move to uh, in the twentieth century Wittgenstein. Uh, you know, who is a great influence on David. And is very you know, poetic. A series and very, of propositions. And, uh, who is, and Wittgenstein describes himself doing philosophy
0: as a kind of poetry. Ariel, so Jerry said something, I think, not controversial, but provocative, which is it's not done. It's not finished until it's transcribed. Yeah, I think that's a, a difficult question. There's
3: a number of stages to these to these works. And um remembering uh in fact in a talk hearing him uh talk about how he came to the talk poem, which was, you know, uh in the car with uh Eleanor Anton, his wife, now widow, um, listening to a, a talk he had sort of given off the cuff at Pomona College and realizing actually this is a poem. Uh, and of course that was before he ever conceived of the fact that he would, how he would write it or, or that he would write it so that there was something about the liveness, um, that, did something to the poetics and he he writes in various places or says or really talks in various places uh, about the fact that actually he feels that uh, the writing of a poem at home and then performing at a reading is like uh, somehow rehearsing and then um, playing the role of a poet but the actual work of poetry is done in this liveness in this space of liveness
1: yeah so he changes yeah. the order of things though Uh, you know, the poem will begin with the talk. Uh, The talk is uh, intensified because he's talking in front of an audience. In other words, David does not go off into a closet, you know, turn on the tape recorder, you know, and start talking. You know, he goes into a a live situation with a real live audience. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he's seeing as he looks out at the audience, uh, uh, you know, but Is he taking cues there? You know, but, you know, obviously it it invigorates him uh, to be out there and and talking in front of people. And he gets it all down uh, on his little ancient (laughs) uh, cassette recorder, you know, and then takes it home and either he or someone else uh, transcribes it. Uh, You know, but that's only part of the process because, uh, you know, transcribing it, it would look, you know, just like a block of prose uh, you know, and David is uh, going to visually make sure that you don't take this as prose. He wants it to, you know, and it's a visual experience. You know, so what we're left with, you know, is the visual experience. We we rarely go back and listen. Uh, I did once I had David, I borrowed from David you know uh, one of the tapes uh, that that had already been turned into a written piece you know and I could see how much that was worked you know the you know th- there's a lot of work that goes into
0: the visual version when David of a talk poem. consented to give us the recordings for pen sound something changed less so in your case because you've always been interested in performing the written poem. There's m- much of it that's originally oral, but my point is you perform it and then you're happy to have Sound provide the recording. But in this case, Diane, we've got a whole uh, website now where people can listen to the, re- to, to the raw audio only before the print. And you just heard Jerry say that that's, you know, his experience of the... Audio was later, you know, once in a while. But in this case, we only have the audio. So does that—and you've been—you're you, you've, you've, uh, a person who's been in the audience many times to hear David do his pieces. So what's the relationship between that experience, hearing the audio as a recording much later, and reading it? Do you think we should put
4: the three together? What's what's your well? I mean, it? I have several thoughts about it. I mean, one thing is David with the tape recorder to start with. You know the fact that he stands up, and I have never seen a performance where he didn't make something of a fuss in the way that Jackson McLo always used to. Yeah. make a little bit of a fuss around. Can the we tape pause you recorder. for a second,
0: Zach? Can you play the very beginning of this thing where he stumbles? He has a yeah, cough yeah, and he stumbles. Yeah, 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 I mm-hmm. love that, and that was. I think you're implying that that was purposeful. That stumbling. Can we listen to it and then Diane, you'll comment? It's either purposeful or inbred.
2: <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, it's, I have to turn this thing on. And I've said many times before, I don't turn it on because I know that I need it for, <laughs> for eternity, but I'm not always sure what I'm going to say. I'm always not sure of what and I'm not it's not that I'm not always sure it's not that I'm, I'm getting over cold. It's not that I'm occasionally unsure of what I'm gonna say. I'm always unsure of what I'm going to say. Diane, okay. I'm crying here. That
4: is so <laughs> beautiful. I love that. What's going on? Okay. Well, but I he think that's part of this. I don't think he
1: transcribed that in
4: writing. No, no, no. That. He doesn't transcribe that in writing, but I came across something in one of the essays in this. Um, um, yeah. How, long, how long, is long is the present? Where he refers to the research. That he does prior to a talk poem. He's not saying he always does research prior, but, you know, the notion that this is a totally spontaneous and unprepared um That's obviously wrong. Performance. I don't know if it's obviously well, wrong. Well, I'll just i am sorry to interrupt yeah.
0: you, but I'll say at the end of this piece, the very last line is, you know, watch out, intellectuals and professors— we could suffer the fate of Archimedes. He doesn't say it exactly that. right now. That right. was, you know, 47 minutes after he did the Archimedes stuff. So he clearly knew there, I think, that that was the point he wanted to make. And I I can't think I disagree with you about this piece, uh, Diane, because I what I like is—I know it's different. I'll accept that. But what I like is he's saying, we're all Archimedes types doing our—we uh, don't want anybody to bug our circles— But there's an invading army, and uh, this could happen to us too, you know. So I took that as a kind of, this is a special thing, this is a special night, and he's sort of warning us in a maybe more serious way than we want in an Anton talk poem. But anyway, I'm sorry.
4: Well, he often likes to pretend that there hasn't been preparation, that you know the the title is given to him almost off the cuff he wasn't sure what the title would be he didn't know what he was going to say and i think that's probably not true
1: yeah in another sense his whole life is a preparation for the talk <laughs> right, because I mean, Dave, Dave, david yeah. is in a was in a constant state of preparation right. you know the intelligence, you know, was terrific. Uh, it would also turn up, you know, on less, f- in less formal occasions, sitting around the dinner table uh, or in the living room or uh, All the at a restaurant or wherever. You know, D- I mean, David, uh, you know, talked uh, freely, uh, but, but not talked freely in the same way that he would do at a performance uh, because he was
4: also a terrific listener David would talk about talking to discover so that there was that notion of as he talked he was developing things he was thinking about it was, you know and and things were developing and being discovered as the uh, uh, piece yeah, and, and, and
1: some pieces feel very much that way As if he's been going here he's been going there uh, you know there's a kind of general topic that he has in mind and then to- towards the end there's a s- sudden conclusion that he yeah. comes to at the end of yeah. the
0: piece what it means to be avant garde but what I think is happening in this piece Ariel is that the in, if that piece is sort of a meta commentary on the avant garde by talking about the uncle and his widow and the this is a meta piece because it's talking about the, the terrible, tr- destructive tragedy of the fashionableness of metonymy, of, of how we can get away with the e- easy substitution of the winter of our discontent and the Sears Roebuck of our discontent of Saddam and 9-11. And that is what we poets, because that's what he says. George W. has a poetical sensibility, laugh, laugh. Everybody's laughing. He basically says, this is my whole art is about free-flowing improvisational metonymies, and look where it's gotten us. Yeah, I think that he's
3: troubled in this piece, and I think I said that before, and I'll say it now. And I think that the question of um, the precision of words, a number of times uh, what I love about being able to listen to this work is that you really um, hear those Um, those details in, in the orality of it. And um, he, in a number of times, he actually chooses a word very specifically and you hear him choosing it. Um, And I think that is something that's going on for him is that he's, he's dealing with the fact that that exactly what you said earlier, that the, the, the menonymic aspect of his work is actually perhaps uh, problematic in this
0: context. He stages it in a piece of that part of the talk that we didn't hear. He stages it by doing a little quick mnemonic free associative thing where he starts with and he ends up with his aunt Tilda and a uh, bee sting and uh, right. So he started somewhere and he, and, 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 it sounds like a talk poem in germination, you know, I'm going to go from this, this word to this story. Um, I wonder if we could listen I'm going to ask Zach to play this. To the very end of that, the metonymy section. So something like 2145, and then we're going to listen to him say, that's what you're doing, and then we'll talk about it.
2: But the one problem with the whole theory that metaphor works this way, as for example, let us say, the seasons and a, the seasons and a nervous king, I have entered into the winter of my discontent. It doesn't work as if somehow or another, like you say. Well, what could replace winter? What, you know, what is winter replacing? It kind of like he's reaching into a de- into a terrible period. There are in, there are nearly infinite number of possible substituents that could replace winter. I ventured into the I ventured into the into the seals and roebuck of my discontent because it's <laughs> chaotic, you know. Or well, maybe he couldn't have, but I could make him come. In. I could make him enter into anything. I, you know, I, could enter, I could enter into the defective automobile of my discontent. <laughs> they sold me a lemon. I have entered into the General Motors of my discontent. I have entered into the end line of my discontent. You know, I mean, we could do a lot with it, but the point is that there isn't a the finite substitution set for metaphor, and it doesn't work by substitution anyway. When a metaphor operates, it, it operates like the production of an overlay. That is to say, one thing gets overlaid on something else, like a screen. And you print the two of the images, one on top of the other together. And whatever the consequences of that may be, that's what you're doing.
0: Whatever the consequences of that overlay may be, he's been talking about Saddam and 9-11, that's what you're doing. You are, you are putting the two together. Is that an indictment of poetry? Is that an indictment of the you know, metonymic style? Is that an indictment of improvisation? Well, it's self-critical. I'm just trying to find out how and, and why.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't take it as a condemnation of poetry.
4: I wouldn't take it as self-criticism either. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I don't think David was inclined to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, he may be criticizing somebody else. Well, George but, W.
0: Bush and the black box yes, for right. uh, doing the but, overlay. Right, but he's not
1: putting them in. George Bush's talks.
0: Lots of talk. David poems
1: does there. not take his talk poems.
3: I think that he's dealing with the. the I don't stakes. know what he would do
1: with Trump's talks, which <laughs> have a kind
3: of, <laughs> alas, we do not
1: <laughs> really get to know crazy quality to.
3: I think he's dealing with the stakes. Uh, I think that he's. Uh, this is a question of what the stakes of, of this type of, uh, of of not only metonymy but also um, digression and free association and. Um, uh the various w- w- things we use for poetry which when they're used in other contexts can be quite dangerous that's why I, th- I don't think it is a condemnation actually I think it's a celebration of uh, the talk poem as such against say uh, what what are what
0: politicians do let's talk about Anton's art uh, in general let's talk about what what it's like to be in the audience to hear one of these talk poems
4: it was variable sometimes i thought they were absolutely wonderful and you know they they were intimate they were um inclusive Uh, I mean, they were never a dialogue, we know that, you know, even though sometimes David, well, he has one piece called Dialogue, but they're not a dialogue, because nobody else gets to talk. Jerry points out that personally, it often was a dialogue, and uh, I I gave a little talk at David's um, memorial, and was particularly... um, What I emphasized particularly was David's generosity and intellectual generosity, and David always made you feel very smart. You know, now sometimes in the talk pieces, David sometimes left me feeling a little stupid because... I felt inundated with a, a kind Rick of series of
0: theorists
4: and right, theorists and, and, you know, as in this this piece with first I have to visualize, uh, the polygons you know, the polygons like, with yeah. the circles inside the polygons and, you know, yeah. that. You did that and really then, well. And yeah. then the whole linguistic thing, you know, where you got to know all about metaphors and metonymy and wow. Well, and on we go, you know. So sometimes I felt intimidated and sometimes I felt very amused because David can be could be very humorous. And the stories that he told about uh, his mother, for instance, with her Mickey Mouse slippers and, you know, things like that. And so, the, the, in this piece, the dog that takes a tiny little bite out of the...
0: A uh, veterinarian's thigh. <laughs> yes, but,
4: yes. And the
0: dog knew something about that vet because everyone else at the at the clinic was kind of happy that the
4: dog had done that.
0: <laughs> That's a very funny moment. <laughs> it's Jerry, a good wh- story. What's it like? What is you? You are thinking as you're listening. Okay, where is he going? You're trying to look at the structure or the scaffolding of it, or you're just listening. Uh, you're just letting. You know, it
1: well, happen. I'm just listening, and uh, you know, and, and I'm interested in where he's going. I'm not listening to it the way I would to, you know, to other p- poetry. I'm listening to my friend That's David different. talk, oh, and okay. it's really the
0: language of talking. So it's not the genre, generic difference. It's the this is a close friend, and this is the way he talks. Difference.
1: Well, it's a he's a close friend, but it, it's a, it's a person talking. Uh, you know, the person talking also has. I would say a kind of reverence for poetry uh you know that makes him you know so eager to assert the idea that he is not just talking, he is talking a poem he is a poet talking you know it's very important you know to to get that across you know even though uh you know as I think I pointed out to him uh you know you know if you put these philosophical investigations into a book, the publisher is going to print on the back of the book the category poetry. You know, and David wanted very much for this to be recognized as poetry, you know, and we came to recognize it,
0: you know. And And he was one of those poets who expanded the definition of what got to be counted as poetry.
4: Yeah. Yes, I think the, I, I presume people know that uh, Anton wrote uh, poetry in a traditional way. I
1: before, mean, the verse, poem. before the talk
4: poems, before the talk poems, yeah, poem. yeah so, and did it
1: very well, and, and was and, recognized. It, yeah.
4: I mean, was pu- yeah. was a published poet and many years before mm. too, for well, a long yeah, time, for a long time. Yeah. That's right, yeah. and, well, and
1: we watched him. You know, as you know, he backed away from that, put that aside, you know, and discovered, talked talking to discover himself. Also, you know, in you know, in in this art that he was
0: yeah. uh, creating. Final thought, final words, something you want to put into the record here about David Anton? I was just going to mention that um,
3: in the spring of two thousand seventeen, uh, I taught a course at uh, at university of pennsylvania on the lineage of the talk poem in memory of david and the we response course on that? course yeah
0: who knew i know
3: well, my students yeah they did yeah. um and uh, the response from the students um, and the ways in which studying um First, beginning with David, the first session on David, and then uh, trying to sort of trace back the various lineages that could have led to this, including, uh, for example, uh, Rebbe Nachman of Bretzlev, um, including the Hebrew prophets, but also Homer, including a number of figures. Wait, wait,
0: wait! The Hebrew prophets were in the Talk Poem course. Indeed, I love we it. read it. Can the you Hebrew say? Give or... us thirty seconds on that. We read um, Jeremiah alongside Homer. So Jeremiah was a metonymous topic. Topic changing. Well, we talked about in that case the stakes of uh,
3: poetry and of, of talking. So, uh, in the case of Homer, the, the question of entertainment and the question of um, community and sitting around a fire and uh, being together. And in the case of uh, Jeremiah, catastrophe. Actually, we may come closer to Jeremiah uh, in this talk poem we listened to today or the excerpts, uh, that is stakes, which are about violence and not, this is, a, it, this yeah. is a Jeremiah, This a Jeremiah. It, it,
0: it, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you put that in there. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. Diane, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to shape your, try to shape your final work. because I want you to have a chance to say something for the record, uh, in memory of David, a dear friend of yours. Is there something that people should know about this, this writer and this person?
4: Well, we were friends for more than sixty years. i've m- much more than sixty years I think uh I That's a lot of time a lot of time a lot of time uh David was as I was saying before, he was an extremely generous person and and encouraged other people's intellectual activity and I felt as if I had. Well, I came away from an evening with David feeling very smart. I don't always feel very smart, but after an evening with David, when he told me how smart I was, you know, I really felt it. And um, and I miss him. I'm very sorry he's gone.
0: Jerry, same invitation if you want to speak personally about this dear friend of David.
4: David, for
1: me, we met in uh, I believe 1950. You know, and that puts it at uh, uh, 67 years ago. Well, that's how long I knew him. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> and Diane met him maybe a month or two afterwards. You know, and I always prided myself, you know, as we got older that, uh, you know, I remembered David Anton with a head of black hair. Oh, uh, my goodness, because really. He, the Areopitia got to him, you know, yeah. shortly after we met. Uh, and, uh yeah, you know, I... Went through the awful experience for him, and uh, at a time when uh, that was when, not a when, thing. When, yeah. yeah, you know, when the the covering of, or uncovering of the head was, uh, uh, you know, fairly rigidly de- defined. You know, but with David, you know, the discovery of poetry came to both of us, you know, simultaneously. You know, we could talk about that. You know, he was and remained, you know, my closest friend in poetry. You know, and that meant a great deal. You know, it was a different, you know, the talking, you know, with David. And it was mostly telephone communication in New York you know, way back when, uh, you know, and meeting outside or having dinner together at our place. Uh, and um, uh, I think in, you know, in the early poetry, poetry, you know, before the talk poems, uh, th- there was a, a, a closeness of, uh, of voice and method between us. although you know, <laughs> Clearly, we were different people and different poets, you know. And then David went off into the uh, uh, the talk poems. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, with him then, and um, uh, yeah, and. Uh, uh, he kept referring to me as uh, an ongoing lyric poet. <laughs> uh uh-huh, A little he, edge to that. Trip, I don't know if, if edge. Uh, <laughs> Did he but, actually say that phrase, the
0: ongoing uh, lyric poet, uh, Jerome Rothenberg?
1: Uh, something like that. Cl- you know, cl- close. Uh, you know, close to that. But um, and with with the ethno poetics, also he was. Uh, uh, you know, the one I think had the most conversation with, aside from Diane.
0: Well, thank you, uh, all three of you, for that. Uh, my final thought is really actually going to entail quoting Jerome Rothenberg. This this is one of my favorite pieces. It's an old piece from 1975 called A Dialogue on Oral Poetry. And in this piece, and so you're talking about, what, even if he thought of you as an ongoing lyric poet... Uh, the two of you shared very much the space of exploring what it meant to um, do poetry in a non-academic way, in a non-academic setting, and to do it orally, which is to try to nudge it back toward origins and so forth. And and here's a fantastic paragraph that I'm sorry, Jerry, you've heard me quote it before, but I just really think it says a lot about you, you and David Anton together. And you're responding to to a question that was posed to you in this ongoing conversation. As for poetry belonging in the classroom, it's like the way they taught us sex in those old hygiene classes. Not performance, but semiotics. If I had taken Hygiene 71 seriously, I would have become a monk. (laughs) And if I had taken college English seriously, I would have become an accountant. But I do teach from time to time. So realize that the classroom becomes a substitute for those places, coffee shop or kiva, where poetry actually happens and where it can be learned, not taught, in action. And
1: and reading that, Al, you know, I realize how close David and I were to each other. I mean, I... In the same way that our voice over the telephone was often mistaken one for the other. By uh, me. By,
0: by oh, Diane. Now, now we're <laughs> getting really into intimate okay. things. <laughs> you know, but... Um, well, I'm very moved by your saying yeah. that because you, you you heard yourself, I'm quoting you, yeah. saying that the coffee shop in the Kiva, now this is, or the, or the sitting around a fire, this is... When you said it in 1975 and before, a great challenge to the where the direction poetry was going, and I think both of you in different ways, but also in similar ways, are, are saying, you know, David, the talk poem is saying something about talking and about where we talk, um, what it means to be listening to someone perform a talk, and that that is poetry in the largest sense. And that it has very little to do with what you were learning in your uh, English lit, you know, anthology class, which would have turned you into an accountant. So, all right, well, we'd like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for all of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend or praise someone or something going on in the poetry world or in the film world or in the visual art world or in the music world. Uh, so, Ariel, uh, gather some paradise.
3: I'll just uh, note two works. The first is uh, the third edition, uh, revised and expanded Technicians of the Sacred, which we're celebrating tonight at Writers House. But you can get it anytime as soon as this... Uh, as this poem talk comes out, you'll be able to order it and it's wonderful and quite different from the second edition and certainly different from the first edition. So I I highly recommend that. And the other thing is, uh, the Supplement Volume 2, which is published by Kelly Writers House and the and the Creative Writing the, Program. The, the journal is called Supplement. That's right. Supplement, and the, this is the second volume. It will have work from poets from Nathaniel Mackey to Cecilia Vicuña, and uh, it should be a
0: wonderful uh, volume. So, And a footnote to your program note. By the time people are listening to this poem talk, uh, you will be able to go to the Jerome Rothenberg uh, Pensound page, and you will hear... Various people reading in celebration of Technicians of the Sacred. It'll be right there. And uh, name a couple of the people who are going to be reading.
3: Uh, Charles Bernstein, Laney Brown, Michelle
0: Owens, Georgia Connemu, Ron Silliman. Ron, Ron Silliman. Silliman. So a lot, of fr- Myself. Long, a lot of long-time friends. All right, great. Diane, gather some paradise.
4: Well, this may sound very silly to you, but I am reading Wilkie Collins. You mean a biography?
0: No, you're reading one of the novels. Woman in
4: White again. I've read it before. Wilkie Collins. But because we're traveling and I take the Nook, and because I don't want to buy books for the Nook, I am a specialist in the 19th century.
0: Because they're all free. They
4: are all public domain. So I have the complete Wilkie Collins, and it is amazing how modern a writer he is. He's a contemporary of Dickens. They were very good friends. He doesn't sound at all like Dickens, who's one of my favorite writers. He sounds very modern. So that's my little
0: bit. Diane Rothenberg, (laughs) no one in 120-some episodes of Poem Talk has ever recommended Wilkie
4: Collins.
0: (laughs) So you are an original. Thank you. No, but I'm serious. That's a great recommendation. (laughs) Jerry, uh, gather some paradise. Uh, Well, I, I will just call
1: attention, which would be obvious attention here, uh, you know, to the, uh, the the selected talk poems of David Anton, which have absorbed me, you know, over the last couple of weeks preparing to come here and t- to talk about David t- talking. And the title of the uh The title is uh, How Long is the Present? And it's published by University of New Mexico Press and edited by Stephen Fredman with
0: a wonderful Steve introduction. Fredman. great. Yeah. Would you do us a favor of opening, open up the table contents and shout out the names of two talk pieces that are gems that you'd like people to Uh, focus on? Well, the
1: title uh, piece, How Long is the Present? uh, And uh, uh, I already mentioned what it means to be avant-garde, you know, but... um, uh, Maybe one more? Well, one piece that's uh, missing here, but maybe in another uh, you know, edition, is um, uh, uh, called What Am I Doing Here? Uh, and it goes back to a reading that we did together at the Poetry Center at San Francisco State, uh, you know, some number of years ago, uh, in which I read the my poem, uh, Cockboy, with the question in a Sort of fake Yiddish uh, dialogue. Wait, you do a yeah, fake Yiddish dialogue? What am I doing here? You know, and David changed <laughs> it into "What am I doing here?"
0: <laughs> Great recommendation, Steve Redman, If you're listening to this, you missed that one. <laughs> um, for my uh, Gathering Paradise, I have a copy of this new edition of Technician of the Sacred, and uh, one of my favorite pieces in it, and it's been expanded for this edition, is called Genesis One, and it is a marvelous piece and i'm sorry jerry but i'm hoping i can slide the book over to you and you're willing to w- be willing to read perform some part of it or all of it whatever you feel like it was an oral piece <laughs> but it's
1: here as now a, as a great long block of prose of uh, from the akato indian in northern california Water went they say, land was not they say, water only then, mountains were not they say, stones were not they say, trees were not they say, grass was not they say, fish were not they say, deer were not then they say, elk were not they say, grizzlies were not they say, panthers were not they say, wolves were not they say, bears were not they say, people were washed away, they say, grizzlies were washed away, they say, panthers were washed away, they say, deer were washed away, they say, coyotes were not then they say, ravens were not they say. Owls were not, they say. Buzzards were not, they say. Chicken hawks were not, they say. Robins were not, they say. Grouse were not, they say. Quails were not, they say. Blue jays were not, they say. Ducks were not, they say. Yellow hammers were not, they say. Condors were not, they say. Herons were not, they say. Screech owls were not, they say. Woodcocks were not, they say. Woodpeckers were not, then they say. The meadowlocks were not, they say. Then sparrowhawks were not, they say. Then woodpeckers were not, they say. Then seagulls were not, they say. Then Pelicans were not they say, Orioles were not they say, then mockingbirds were not they say, wrens were not they say, russet back thrushes, blackbirds were not they say, then crows were not they say, then hummingbirds were not they say, then crows were not they say, then curlews were not they say, then mockingbirds were not they say, swallows were not they say, sandpipers were not they say, then foxes were not they say, then monks were not they say, then elks were not they say, then jackrabbits, gray squirrels were not they say, Then ground squirrels were not, they say. Then red squirrels were not, then, they say. Then chipmunks were not, they say. Then wood rats were not, they say. Then kangaroo rats were not, they say. Then long-eared mice were not, they say. Then sapsuckers were not, they say. Then pigeons were not, they say. Then warblers were not, they say. Then geese were not, they say. Then cranes were not, they say. Then weasels were not, they say. Then wind was not, they say. Then snow was not, they say. Then frost was not, they say. Then rain was not, they say. Then it didn't thunder. Then trees were not not when it didn't thunder they say it didn't lighten they say then clouds were not they say fog was not they say it didn't appear they say stars were not they say it was very dark
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great thank you Wow, that was great. Well, that's all the Bushian metonymic poetics we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Diane Rothenberg, Ariel Resnikoff, and Jerry Rothenberg, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the self-same, amazing. Zach and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support in Poem Talk. This is Al Philries, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Poem Talk.